Thank you, Dr. Smith. I, I appreciate those words that you've given. Uh, I think they lead very well into what I plan to talk about. Um, as Sammy mentioned earlier, I'm Dr. Kristen Kellen. I am one of the counseling professors here at Southeastern. Uh, so as I have uh, prepared this, thank you, sir. As I have prepared uh, what I'd like to speak today, uh, know that what I'm sharing with you comes from the context of a counselor and a professor. Uh, so a little bit different perspective, but also from a parent as well. Uh, my primary focus in counseling and also in many ways in teaching is counseling parents and counseling children. Uh, at least half of my counseling is done with children or teenagers and their families. And so throughout the over a decade now that I have counseled, um, I have seen a lot of uh, dysfunction within families. And so this teaching that I, I want to bring today comes out of that experience, um, comes out of what the Lord has taught me as a counselor and as a teacher. Uh, so uh, first I want to speak uh, for, uh, I want to back up and look at the design for families. Uh, because it's only when we understand how God created families to be uh, that we understand why things go wrong and how to fix them. Uh, so Dr. Smith has, has given us a phenomenal uh, foundation for this and what the Lord teaches us about families. But I want to back up as well. Uh, and in part, I want to share this with you uh, with the framework in mind of what's known as the grand narrative of Scripture, right? Uh, that God created, and then sin entered the world, the fall. Then redemption came through Christ, and then the restoration that is coming but has not come yet. So when I use that framework as we look at what God has designed families to look like, then what happened with the fall, what happened with sin... Uh, and now what we do because of Jesus and because of the gospel in this world that we live in now awaiting restoration, okay? So let's, let's back up even before the creation of our world. Uh, I believe that the family that we have now and the model for the family originates in the Trinity, originates in the relationship that God has had with himself for all of eternity past, God has existed for all time as Father, Son, and Spirit. He has always been in community, in relationship with himself. We see this from the very beginning of his word, right? In Genesis 1, the first three verses, we see that God has existed in community. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit hovered over the darkness. And then God said, the Word of God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now you might say, Kristen, how do you see all three members of the Trinity there? Well, God, God the Father, created in the beginning. The Spirit was hovering, but John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was the Word. Uh, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pointing to Jesus, right? So in the very beginning of creation, we see God in his fullness as the Trinity created. And we see that perfect relationship uh, that was there for all time past and will be for all time uh, forward. 
And yet, when we see the Trinity, as we look throughout the pages of Scripture, uh, we see two very important things. These two themes you see, or see here at the bottom, unity and yet diversity, right? So we see unity, for instance, in creation, that God in his wholeness participates in creation, uh, that God is unified in purpose, in desire, right? The two, two or three members of the Trinity can't desire different things because they are one. We just read that in the Shema in Deuteronomy. Uh, Here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He is unified. And yet, he's diverse. He's different. We know that there are three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each member of the Trinity, we see doing different things in Scripture, right? Uh, The Father as creator, the Father as judge, the Father who initiates covenants with his people, Uh, the Son who came and gave his life for us on Calvary, right? The Son who came and who spoke as the Word made flesh. And then the Spirit who speaks to us, the Spirit who indwells us, right? They are different persons of the Trinity, and yet they are unified as one. And this unity and diversity, I would submit to you, is meant to be a model for us as we think about all of our other relationships, because that's who God is, and he created us to image him, right? Uh, So we have the the Trinity, the relationship amongst the Godhead, uh, and then the next relationship that we see, getting us one step closer uh, to the family, right, is the relationship that God created between himself and man, Uh, In Genesis 1, continuing on, after God has created everything else, he gets to the sixth day of creation, and he says, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1, 26. And he goes on to say, and it says, and God created man in his image, in his likeness he created them, male and female he created them. God created man and woman. And so we see that first, I call it a vertical relationship because there's a clear hierarchy, right? We are not God. Uh, We were not created to be God. Uh, And God created us for a particular purpose. Do you remember the purpose that he gave us? So that we would have dominion over his creation. And then he goes on a verse following to say, and then we would multiply, Uh, I believe that that multiplication, we'll talk about the family, uh, but that multiplication is twofold. First and primary is to make other God followers, right? And second, secondarily to that, is to bear children, is to become a family. Uh, But first and foremost, to uh, make, make disciples, there. So we have this relationship with God, uh, and God is the one who declared that he would make man. It was not us uh, who had any part of that. Uh, and God is the one who formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed or spirited life into him. Uh, that God made this vertical relationship between himself and us. And then we have the third relationship again, just another step closer to the family that God looks down at Adam, and after he had brought all of the animals before Adam, right, and Adam names all of the animals, Adam exercises that dominion, God looks and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that wasn't Adam. That wasn't Adam saying, hey, God, I need someone like me. No, God knew I am in community with myself. Adam needs community. 
Adam needs someone like him. And so what did God do? God created a helper. He created a wife, right? And we all know that story that God took a rib out of Adam and he formed Eve and he gave Eve life. And they became husband and wife. Uh, They became the first married couple. Uh, They became the first family. Uh, So we see this marriage relationship. Uh, And here again, these themes of unity and diversity come out very clearly. Uh, For instance, even on on a very basic physical level, God takes the rib from Adam and he creates a woman like Adam and she was to help him right? Uh, So they were unified in fulfilling God's desires for them, God's commands that were given to both of them uh, to have dominion and to multiply. They were unified, and they were to be unified in doing the work that God had given them. Uh, And yet, there's clear diversity, right? Uh, Anyone who is married may give me a hearty amen to this. Men and women are not the same, Right? Amen. Yes, thank you. Men and women are not the same. Uh, God created us to be different on purpose. God created us to be different in part to bring him more glory and more honor. We praise him for that. But he created us also as different to fulfill different roles. I as a wife and I as a mother do not fulfill the same roles completely that my husband does as husband and father. We're distinct. We have different roles. We are equal in value. We are both image bearers of God, fully image bearers of God. Uh, But we have different roles. We have different responsibilities within our homes and within our family that are God-ordained, and those are good things. So there is to be, as created, both unity and diversity within this marriage relationship. Uh, And those are beautiful things that God created. And then fourth, uh, now we have what we think of as family, uh, is with parents and children. Uh, The multiplication mandate uh, that was given to Adam and Eve uh, is fulfilled in part uh, through having children. And so Adam and Eve, uh, now after they left the garden, uh, had children, right? Uh, And interestingly, Um, it didn't take uh, very long for us to see the effects of sin in that family. We're going to go there in just a minute. Um, But the parents and children uh, were the the community that God gave us uh, here on earth and that God intended here on earth. And we know that families form the basis of community, right? Communities are made up of lots of families. Our churches are made up of lots of families, Um, and these, these themes, again, of unity and diversity are evident here. Uh, our families were intended to be unified in moving towards what the Lord has commanded us to do, in obedience to the Lord, in glorifying the Lord. That's why in the Shema, right, it says, teach your children, impress upon them, because we're all to be of one accord. We are all to worship the Lord and follow the Lord together as a family. Uh, and yet, again, there's a different in, difference in role and function. Uh, a father has a different role than a child. A mother has a different role than a father. And all of those things, all of those roles need to be fulfilled for things to work rightly. I mentioned at the beginning that I've done a lot of counseling with families. Quite often, 
The reason a family is coming for counseling is because one or more people in that family, they simply don't understand what their responsibilities are in that family from God's perspective. <laughs> uh, and so that can create, at its, at its very foundation, a misunderstanding of roles can create lots and lots of struggle. Um, so we have to understand that each member of the family was given by God roles and functions to fill. Now again, I would assert, and I believe God's word asserts, no member of the family is more valuable than any other, though they are different. Uh, I, at home, my youngest uh, is 10 months old, sweet baby girl. She is no less valuable to our God than I am or my husband is. She's a full image bearer of God and worthy of dignity and honor and respect. But she has a very different function, right? A different role in our home. Her responsibility is to honor and to obey. Uh, my responsibility as her mother is to lead her and teach her. Okay? So this, this unity here and moving the same direction in a family. And yet diversity, there's difference going on. So this is our foundation. This is how God created us to be as families. And it's absolutely important that we understand this for several reasons. First, is that God's word has to dictate what is true. And God's word has to dictate uh, my role and my responsibility and your role and your responsibility in your family. Our culture, American culture, Asian culture, any culture, is going to tell them otherwise at some point or another. Our American culture is very self-focused and self-centered, and it is to our harm. It is to our detriment. Uh, other cultures are much more family-focused. That's, that's wonderful, right? But even in the midst of that, all culture will tell us that what we desire is best. But what does God's word tell us? What God desires is best is for our good. So God's word not our culture, whatever that culture may be. God's word has to determine what is right and what is good, and it should be our standard. Second, a second implication for this, and, and here again, I'm going to speak very directly as a counselor. That means that when there's issues at the parent and child level, down here at the bottom of this list, I need to be looking further up that list. So let me give you an example. When I have a family who comes to see me because there's conflict in their home uh, and they can't speak to one another well, they can't talk well to one another, they can't reconcile with one another, my first question uh, or my first aim is not to fix their problem with conflict or communication. My first question is, hey mom, hey dad, how's your walk with God? Because if that is broken, then no wonder there's conflict. No wonder there's issues between parents and children. The next question I ask is, hey, husband and wife, how's your marriage? How are you relating to one another as it relates to God's word and what God's word says about your marriage? And then I get down to the conflict or the disobedience with the child because those other things matter so much more. Uh, and if we just focus further down this list, we don't fix those, those primary or secondary relationships uh, between God and man uh, or husband and wife. It's just temporary. It's not going to last. 
So again, this is the design of the family intentionally. The design of the family is meant to mirror God and his relationship with himself. We know too that God from the beginning of time, beginning of creation, established families to reflect the church, the relationship between Christ and his bride, right? That was not an accident. Uh, That was not an afterthought. God and his design of families intentionally had Christ's redemption in mind has in mind as well the parallel between being adopted as sons and daughters, right? Ephesians 1, we're adopted as sons and daughters. Uh, So when we think about the design of the family, we cannot miss the larger picture. We cannot miss how God designed us to be and how God designed us to reflect him. That gives a lot more weight uh, to our issues within our family, okay? Uh, Next slide here. Uh, But... As we know, uh, it only took three chapters in Genesis right before what happened. He sinned, right? Here comes the serpent in the garden, comes to to Eve uh, and deceives her. She takes of the fruit, she gives it to her husband, and they disobey God. Uh, A tragic, tragic thing happens. And here comes sin. Sin enters the picture uh, not long after Adam and Eve were created created. Uh, And it broke several things. It distorted several things. And the first of those is communication, right? Do you remember in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve take of the fruit, then it tells us that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve heard God walking. Presumably, this was not an uncommon thing. Right? Presumably this was the norm, that God walked with them and spoke with them regularly. God had already given them commands. They communed with God in a very real and tangible way, and God spoke to them regularly. But sin broke that. At the end of Genesis 3, we see that God puts Adam and Eve out of the garden, right? and he puts a cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. And it was many, many, many years before God would speak to his people and God speaking regularly uh, again. That communication was broken between God and man. It was also broken uh, between one another, right? What happens when God comes to Adam and Eve uh, and he, he confronts Adam and he says, Adam, did you take of this fruit? What is Adam's response? This should make us step back a moment. That woman that you gave me, (laughs) that woman that you gave me, gave me the fruit. He blame shifted. Can you imagine the argument that happened after that? I can, right? The communication was broken. And then God looked at Eve and he said, what did you do? And she said, the serpent deceived me. More blame shifting. That communication was broken. The next generation, what happens? Brother kills brother. There's, there's poor communication, clearly, that's happening there. Uh, that was broken. Fellowship, again, and very similarly. Uh, fellowship was broken. The, the daily walking with the Lord between Adam and Eve and God, that ceased, that ended uh, because of sin. Fellowship was broken. Uh, And again, as Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, it wasn't long before brother kills brother. Clearly, fellowship had been broken there. And that relationship, 
that, that built-in, intimate, close relationship between God and man that was natural for Adam and Eve and was perfect between Adam and Eve and their God had been broken. No longer did they commune with God. Uh, and again, the, re- the relationship between Adam and Eve uh, was broken, between brother and brother was bo- broken. Uh, not many chapters later, what do we see? The Tower of Babel. Clearly, communication is broken. Their aims are misdirected, uh, and they, they go to war. Nations go to war with nations very soon after. Sin comes in in full force and comes in so much so that God sends a flood as judgment. Right? Things go wrong very quickly and go terribly wrong there. So we see the impact of sin, right? That even though God had designed relationships, family relationships to be good and perfect and be unified, very, very quickly, all of that is broken. All of that is is torn apart. Now, if we just stop there, we're hopeless, right? Even when the law enters and the law exposes what's in our hearts and exposes sin, that leaves us hopeless because there's a barrier between us and God. There's barriers between us and one another. Uh, But praise God, he did not leave us there, right? God did not leave us uh, in our sin. What we have is the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Now, as a counselor, it is my aim in every conversation that I have in some form or fashion to preach the gospel, to share the gospel message, certainly with unbelievers, but also with believers. We need to be reminded day in and day out what we have now because of Jesus, because he stepped in and he bore the wrath of God in our place. That is, that is beautiful. That is wonderful news. Uh, and not only uh, did he take our punishment, but the good news of the gospel of Jesus coming and, and redeeming us, we're moving towards Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption is that the gospel restores those things that have been broken. So between man and God, we can now communicate, right? When, God, when, when Jesus left, he said, I'm sending my spirit, right? And the spirit dwells within us. Just as Dr. Smith was sharing, when we go to the word of God, we have God himself living in us helping us understand the word that he has given us. That communication is restored. I can now go, as Hebrews tells us, I can go before the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. I can go, think about that. I can go before the God of the universe, the God that Isaiah saw in his heavenly vision, God seated on his throne, and as his daughter, I can communicate with the maker of this world. That communication, by God's grace, has been restored. Fellowship has been restored between man and God. His spirit indwells us. We commune with God. That relationship, again, we have been restored vertically with God. But we've also received restoration horizontally. Within our families, within our churches, we can now communicate better. We can fellowship better. We can have a relationship better, not only because we know the model and we hear that and the Spirit leads us in that, but God has removed 
sin from us. Now, we still sin. Hear that clearly. And that sin gets in the way. We are not yet restored. But God enables us to be led by his spirit to speak rightly to one another, to build one another up, uh, to understand what God's word has to say about how we are to live. And our relationships can be restored because of the gospel of Jesus. Okay? So we live in this space now. We live in this time now where we are subject to the fall. We are broken by sin. And yet we have been restored. Uh, we have been redeemed, rather. And we are being redeemed day in and day out by his spirit and by God's grace. So this is where we're at. We live in, in the world where we're fighting, as Paul says, I, I fight my flesh and yet I know what is good. Uh, and so we, we live in this time where the sin is, is very real and very present, but we have hope of overcoming. We have hope of glorifying the Lord. We're in that, that space of tension, if you will. All right. Um, so the question then becomes, how do we live in the world, but not of the world? The reality that we are in, that things are broken, uh, that we have lies coming to us uh, from the enemy, from our cultures even, uh, and yet we are to live here. Uh, my mind is immediately going to Augustine's teachings about that, are, that we are citizens of another kingdom. How do we live as heavenly citizens while we are still here on earth? How do we do that? Uh, and so how do we deal with the brokenness from sin, uh, the, the messiness of sin before we move towards restoration? Because praise God, we will be restored. We will live one day in the heavenly kingdom where God makes all things new. We will not be separated from one another. We will not have conflict with one another. But in these moments, in this lifetime, what do we do? How do we do that rightly? Um, and the, the answer to that are two things. We remember the gospel. Uh, one of the most common words throughout the scriptures is remember. Remember. Remember what your God did for you when he brought you out of Egypt. Remember the God of your fathers. Remember what I've done. Uh, we see that uh, the, the, God, the, the biblical writers are imploring the readers, remember, remember God. And we need to remember the gospel in its fullness. We, we need to remember that the gospel tells us that we were saved out of death and into life, that we were saved from being slaves to sin, now to being free, right? Remember that. Uh, but with that comes a reminder of where we've been. One of the things that I implore my students often is a sense of humility, and by that, I mean there are times that as a counselor that I sit across a table from someone and I hear messy, ugly, sinful things. That it's tempting to think, I would never do something like that. And that is a lie from my enemy. I am no better than the person sitting across from me. I am, and I am to see myself as Paul did as the chief of sinners. I'm to remember that aspect of the gospel. You, as pastors, as leaders, remember what God has pulled you out of. 
remember and think of where you would be apart from the good news of the gospel. Keep that sense of humility. Remember the gospel. The second is to speak gospel truth to one another. Uh, This is all throughout the New Testament. Paul talks often about speaking to one another in ways that are speaking truth. We're going to get to a passage here in a moment in Ephesians. Uh, Speaking words that build one another up. Uh, Speaking to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We need to be speaking what is true and speaking the gospel truth to one another. Now this is uh, where my role as a counselor comes in and your role as potential counselors come in. Now I know I don't I don't know everyone in this room, but I will guarantee you that at some point or another you have given someone counsel or advice. Right? See a show of hands. If you've ever given counsel or advice, all of you, right? Uh, was that counsel or was that advice gospel truth. It may not have been an explicit, do you know that you were dead in your sin and your trespasses and Christ came to die for you and take the punishment for you and he rose from the grave and he conquered sin and death. It may not have been that explicit, but did it align with God's word? Was it true in the fullest sense of that? It should always be. No matter what that advice is, no matter what that counsel is, it should always be reflective of the good news that we have in God's word, okay? Uh, So that is how we move from the impact of sin, the brokenness of this world, right? Our enslavement to sin apart from Christ. It's it's that way that we move over to right living. Um, God's word, I would submit, is, is not just a rule book, right? When I was young, that's what I thought, that it was just a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, Those things are there, but that's not the main purpose of this book, (laughs) right? This, This text is to show us what God has done for his people and what our response ought to be, okay? Uh, So that reminder. So when I move to right living, only in the sense that right living is reflective of what's in our heart, of restoration, redemption in our heart, right? Luke would say that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Or the bodies act, or we do things, right? Or even that our thoughts happen. All of that's reflective of what's in our heart. So this right living uh, is, is great, is fine, but it always should be reflective of what's going on in here and what's going on in here. Okay? Uh, that's the aim of right living. And the message of the gospel and speaking gospel truth to one another is what brings us to that point. Now again, here is where our role as leaders, as counselors, as pastors come into play is right here in the middle. That's our job. It's our job to speak the gospel and speak truth, not on our own authority, right? uh, but on the authority of God, because it is God who speaks. Uh, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit. I shared that uh, I am a counselor. I'm coming at this from a counseling perspective. I would like for all of you for a moment to think of yourselves as counselors. You may not be a professional, welcome to my office, counselor. <laughs> sitting across from someone, but we established a minute ago that all of you give advice or all of you give counsel. 
And you probably do it more often than you think. So think of yourselves for a moment as counselors. Before we go too far, I think it's helpful for us to understand what is counseling? What is counseling anyways? Why does this matter? Uh, Heath Lambert uh, is one of my colleagues at Southern Seminary. Uh, He defines counseling as a conversation where one party with questions, problems, or trouble seeks assistance from someone that they believe has answers, solution, and help. Uh, A conversation where one party with questions, problems, and trouble seeks assistance from someone they believe has answers, solution, and help. Now, there's a few components here, uh, but I like this definition because of how broad it is, right? Using this definition, you are all counselors, so you can join me in this conversation. Uh, The first thing that is inherent here is persons, is people. Uh, That means that as counselors, we need to know people. We need to know about people. I could spend hours up here telling you about what that looks like and what that means. Uh, But just a few things for us. First, God's word tells us a lot about people. God's word tells us what we're made of. God's word tells us his design for us, uh, for people, for relationships. Uh, God's word tells us that we are broken by sin. Our bodies are broken by sin. Our hearts are broken by sin. Um, We need to know about people starting with what God's word tells us. But then we also need to know about people from people. So that means that when someone comes to me, when someone comes to you as a counselor, as a leader, you need to know them. You need to know them well. That means that when they share their problem with you, what do we do? Do we jump in and fix the problem? No, we do what James 1.19 tells us that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak because we need to learn about the people that we are helping Uh, The Proverbs have many, many verses uh, that essentially communicate this, that when we open our mouth without knowing, we look real foolish, right? Uh, We look foolish. We need to know the person that we are ministering to. We need to know them well, right? The universal things that God tells us, that every person sitting across from me is an image bearer of God, and worthy of honor, every person sitting across from me is also a sinner. And I pray that that person who across from me is a sinner is also saved by God's grace, but I need to know that. That determines my response to them, if they're a believer or not a believer. Uh, And I know about that person uh, universally uh, that they have struggles because of sin. And this is going into the second point here of, of difficulties Um, that all people struggle with things in life, whatever that may be, we'll get to some of those, because sin is a reality. So I can assume every person coming to me, I can assume some of those things. But beyond that, I need to know from them what's their experience. What is their difficulty? They're experiencing some sort of difficulty with their reality, with their life. What is that? It's the person who enters my room, who sits on my couch, I want to say, what's going on? Tell me what the problem is. What are you struggling with? 
right? And how are they perceiving it? How are they experiencing what's going on? Now, a reminder here for us as we have these conversations, what is difficult for you may not be difficult for me. But what is difficult for me, you may excel at. But that's not what matters there. What matters is that the person in front of me is struggling with something. I need to enter their world. I need to walk in their shoes, to use that old saying. Uh, I need to understand why it's difficult for them, not why I think it should or should not be difficult to them. I need to understand their experiences. Uh, In one word, that is what's known as empathy. I need to feel what they feel. I need to understand their perspective uh, because they have difficulties. Now, a third aspect of this, and a very important one, is that there's some sort of search for answers, right? We've all been in a situation where someone comes to us and they just need to vent. They just need to get something off and they just need to talk and process. uh, And they're not wanting you to fix it, per se, right? I will admit, I'm a fixer. Right? So when someone comes to me uh, and says, here's what's going on, here's what I'm frustrated with, I want to jump in and fix. Just my nature. Sometimes that's not what's needed. <laughs> my husband will tell me sometimes, I don't want you to fix it. You're not counseling me, just listen. Uh, I need to know that person and know, are they searching for a response from me? Now this is a little bit easier oftentimes in a ministry context where they have an appointment with you, or you set a time to meet, they're looking for answers. But sometimes all that they're looking for is someone to listen and understand them and hear them. Uh, So counseling, though, is some sort of search for answers uh, in some way, shape, or form. Fourth, inherent in this definition, uh, and this is more implicit, is that there's actually a solution to their problems. Um, But all all issues that we face in life have some sort of solution. That solution may be very temporary or maybe very uh, quick. Uh, It may be, for instance, that a family comes to me and they have some sort of disagreement or conflict and what they need, the solution is for someone to mediate and help them compromise or help them communicate with one another. But oftentimes, the solution, uh, the true solution for the struggle is not going to come in this lifetime. We need to understand that. Uh, I have several counselees at the moment, several people that I counsel at the moment, uh, that at the end of the day, I can only bring them so far. Right? And God's word certainly informs what we do day in and day out. Uh, but ultimately, we're, we're awaiting full restoration. Times of suffering or times of grief. Uh, I can name a number of situations. Uh, it may be that the true solution is full restoration. And right now, our focus, the answer, the solution is long-suffering and suffering in a way that is honoring to the Lord. Uh, But there is always some sort of solution to a struggle. And as counselors, uh, we must be wise in understanding which of those categories it fits in. Is there a a solution now, or are we awaiting a solution, or both? 
and then how we point towards that. Uh, and then fifth, and this, this feels very obvious, I think, uh, but counseling is a conversation, right? It's a conversation between me as counselor or you as counselor and the person who is seeking help, who is looking for a solution. Uh, and so on a very basic level, counseling demands that we can communicate well. It demands that we can understand one another well, uh, that conversation that happens, right? If you sit in a room with another person and never say a word, very little is accomplished, right? Nothing happens. Very little happens, rather. Uh, so there must be some sort of conversation that leads to the solutions. So again, using this definition, all of you are counselors at some point or another. Embrace that, right? It's hard work, but it's good work. All of you are counselors uh, in some respect. Uh, so let's keep going uh, with that. So what do we do in counseling? When I seek to help someone, when you seek to help someone as a counselor, what is your goal? Think back to the visual I gave you earlier about moving from the effects of sin right, to right living. What was on that arrow? The gospel, gospel truth. And so the solution, ultimately, it may be nuanced for a situation, it may be contextualized for a situation, but ultimately, counsel is speaking the truth in love. I love this passage that, that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4.15. It really is at the foundation of counseling, biblical counseling in my opinion. There Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So I underline speaking the truth in love, because as counselors, that's your job. Very simple. Speak the truth in love. Three key components. First is that you speak. I just said a moment ago, if you simply sit in a room with someone and neither of you speak, very, very little happens, if anything. Uh, so you must speak. Now again, James 1 would remind us that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be wise in what you speak. Don't speak hastily. Don't speak without knowing. Uh, but, but we must speak, right? And God has commanded us to speak, right? Uh, in my classes at the seminary, oftentimes we'll, we will uh, compare biblical counseling with secular counseling. I don't want to discount all of that, uh, but in, in the secular realm, one uh, major uh, theme, if you will, or area of thought has been, I just simply need to listen and reflect. I don't actually speak as a counselor, I just listen and reflect. Uh, there's some usefulness to that, but God's word commands us to speak. So brothers and sisters, speak. <laughs> speak truth, right? That brings us to the second point. What is the content of our speech? Truth. Now what is truth? Philosophers throughout time have debated the answer to that question. Jesus says very clearly, in John 17, 17, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We are to speak this. 
and we are to speak it clearly. Now, every person who comes to see you as a counselor, as a pastor, as a leader, will have a different struggle, will have a different issue, and that's okay. They're different people. But the truth does not change. We may contextualize the truth for the hearer, as Paul did. He contextualized the truth as he spoke to Jews versus Gentiles. We may make it pertinent to that situation, but it always is the truth. The gospel does not change. The message does not change. We want to speak what is true and never waver from that. Now, if I'm honest, as a counselor, that takes a lot of weight off of my shoulders. Because as long as I'm faithful to speak this, it's okay. I want to speak it a particular way, which we'll get to. But this word may be offensive to its hearers. The gospel is offensive to its hearers. I want to speak it lovingly, but I do not need to shy away from this. It's not on my authority, it's on God's authority. And so my responsibility is to be a student of God's word and a student of the person in front of me and to apply this to that. Apply God's word to his people. Thirdly, we are to speak the truth in love, right? In love. Now, what is the greatest commandment that God has given us? To love God. What is the second greatest commandment? To love neighbor. In doing this, we are being obedient. When we speak lovingly uh, to our neighbor who is sitting across from us, uh, we are speaking truth in love. We are loving them, okay? Um, This is very, very important for us that we speak lovingly. Now, there will be times, and I will admit as a counselor, that it's hard to be patient, (laughs) right? Parents probably can think, as Dr. Smith shared with us, uh, we don't just tell our children one time. No, I have a three-year-old as well, and we're in the middle of this. We kind of tell it over and over and over and over (laughs) again. There are times, admittedly, when I get impatient, because it seems that I'm speaking the truth over and over and over again. And yet, God's word commands us very clearly that all the time my words are to be loving, even if they are rebuking words, even if they are correcting words. They are to be loving words, kind words, gentle words, truthful words, but loving words words to them. Our, our words should be characterized by that, by love. And then you see here, the last part of this verse, uh, Paul tells us the aim of speaking the truth in love. Uh, and while he is speaking much broader than counseling, of course, he's speaking to the whole church uh, in this passage, he tells us what the outcome is to be. What is the aim of speaking the truth in love? It is maturity. It's to help that person grow up. Can we do that lovingly? But just like I discipline my children to lead them towards maturity, towards right living, we do the same thing in counseling. Uh, Very simply, my aim for every person who comes into my office is that they become more like Jesus. 
and become more like Christ. In their context, what does that mean for them? So they grow up. Ultimately, I want to work myself out of a job. (laughs) So they're doing that so well that their local church can pick up so that you can pick up and and lead them on even further down that road. Uh, But the goal is Christian maturity. Put another way, is sanctification, right? So that their hearts are cleansed, that they become more like Christ, and they live in light of that. Uh, that's our role in counseling. So let's keep going. So counseling helps us do a couple of things. First, counseling in a very real sense helps us understand areas of sin in our lives. This is not fun. Let's just admit that. It is not fun to expose sin in our own lives that needs to be changed. That confronts us. It confronts our pride. Uh, It hurts us. Uh, But counseling helps us do that because if we don't understand where we have sin in our life, we can't get rid of it. We can't uproot it, right? We need to know where that sin is. Now, for every situation, this is going to look different. For a family who comes to me, for instance, with a defiant child, a disobedient child, and they need that help, perhaps what this looks like is for me to help the child understand that they are not honoring mother and father. They are disobeying on a very simple, basic level. But it may also mean that I'm working with mom and dad to look at sin in their life. Are they disciplining consistently? Are they fulfilling their role as a mother and father? Are they offended by the sin in their child or offended because their pride has been um, gotten at? Right? That they've, their, their pride is offended as opposed to being concerned about the state of their child's heart. Uh, there's a great book that I use in one of my classes uh, by Ted Tripp called uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And in that book, he rightly helps us as counselors and and helps parents understand that when we discipline our child, it is for the purpose of their godliness. It is not primarily for the purpose of them behaving rightly. Now, all of the parents in the room, myself included, will say, life is much easier when our children obey and they act right. I don't think it's bad to desire those things, but for a family who comes in and they're struggling, I want to be asking that question. Are you just wanting them to behave or are you desiring their godliness? That might be an area of sin in their life. Uh, Counseling helps expose those things. Uh, Because we are sinners and we are not yet restored, we've been redeemed but not yet restored, there's always sin in our life. Always. Uh, and so this is an area that counseling, intentional conversation can, uh, can look at. Second, uh, counseling helps us to solve problems, really practical problems. So the same family that may come to me with a defiant child, perhaps they on a, on a very simple level need to understand what appropriate discipline looks like. Discipline looks different for different ages of children. It looks different for different personalities. It is not uh, optional. Discipline is not optional, but it may be different. And so perhaps on a very practical level, I need to help parents see what's appropriate and how best 
to discipline their children. Uh, I'll give you a practical example of this. I sit down with families a lot and have them write out a list of if this, then that. If you do, child, if you do this, the consequence is this. And I'll have the families create, mother and father together, create, unified together, create this list for their children uh, so that it's consistent and it's predictable. Children thrive with consistency and predictability, even if it's tough, consistency and predictability. And so I'll help the parents walk through what's appropriate discipline for this child if they do this and have them write that list out, put it on their refrigerator and follow through with it. That's solving a problem, solving a a very basic problem. Another example of this, and one we'll be talking about in a breakout session later, is how to communicate. We think that communication is uh, easy and it's natural, but it's not. It's hard to communicate well. It's hard to communicate clearly. And so perhaps it is that I sit with a husband and a wife And on an area of disagreement, I help them honor one another by listening and then by speaking truth to one another and then pull out practical application. Maybe something that basic and that simple, solving a problem. Uh, Next, counseling also may help us repair relationships. Uh, In the midst of counseling families, There are a lot of broken relationships and hurt feelings uh, and offenses that have been done against one another. And so perhaps part of my role as counselor in those situations is to walk them through reconciliation, is to walk them through repenting to one another, extending forgiveness to one another and what that means, and then walking them through what does reconciliation look like and now right living Uh, in response. So repairing relationships that have been broken. Uh, This may be on very, very basic, high level. Someone said something that was offensive, or it may be very, very deep after persistent abuse. But in either of those situations, I might be aiming to repair relationships and do that uh, from a biblical perspective. Ultimately, Uh, counseling helps us to live rightly before God and one another. We want to live rightly before God and one another. Again, reflective of what's in our heart, right? I don't want to see families leave my office and simply acting right. If it's not taken root here, it will not last long because the fruit is going to come out, (laughs) The bad fruit is going to come out if there are bad roots. So I want to help them learn what it means to live rightly before God and one another out of love for God and love for one another. Okay, so counseling helps us do these sorts of things. Uh, But counseling requires a couple of things uh, for us. counselees in particular, but I think it also requires these things of us as counselors and of leaders. Uh, First, it requires that we be humble. I'm going to speak in both of these categories, person being counseled or counselee, and then the person counseling. For the counselee, 
it requires uh, a humility to acknowledge we have a problem. Uh, we need help. Something is broken. Uh, it takes very intentional conversation in that regard, that, that mindset. But as counselors, it also requires humility. I mentioned earlier the tendency of a counselor, and I'm uh, being honest and transparent here. Uh, it's easy for me to sit in my chair and think I could never sin like that, and that's a lie. Uh, it requires on my part that I recognize what I have been saved out of and what I have been saved for. Uh, it also requires humility on our part as counselors and leaders uh, to be humble, to know that I may not have all the answers. I believe that God's word has the ultimate answers for them, but there have been many times in counseling that I sit in my chair and I am praying fervently, God, you have promised that if any of us lacks wisdom, we simply have to ask, James 1, right? We just have to ask, and I pray and ask for wisdom. I have to be humble to acknowledge that I am not the expert in everything and every person. I've been trained, and I praise God for that training, uh, but it is, it is not exhaustive. It, it doesn't cover everything. I need humility. And sometimes that humility says, you know what? We need somebody else to help us here too. I'm not the best person to help here. Uh, let's do that. I would, I would submit that that is the most loving and honoring to that person that I not be fake, that I not act like I have the answers if I don't. That's not loving towards them. So it requires that we are humble. Second, it requires transparency. Uh, for the person being counseled, the counselee is being asked to come in a room, potentially with a stranger, and share the most intimate parts of their lives, their sin and their brokenness. It requires transparency. Now that demands that they trust us and that we are trustworthy. Uh, but it's asking for transparency. But it requires transparency on our part as counselors as well. It, we need to acknowledge uh, perhaps not openly, uh, at times yes, but perhaps not openly, the areas of struggle in our own lives. Uh, but we need to have others holding us accountable as well. Uh, I am a firm believer that counselors need counselors. No person is above needing wisdom and counsel. So we need transparency of our own struggles and our own areas of weakness uh, so that we can get that help as well. Uh, because we can better serve our counselees when we know what our struggles are. Okay. Third, it, desire, it requires rather a desire to change. Uh, very, very few people come to counseling not wanting some sort of change, right? They're coming because they need help. They need counsel. Uh, and so this is built in for many people, uh, but a, a large group of, of people that I counsel are teenagers that their parents have brought them. And most of the time, they don't want to be there, <laughs> and they make that very clear. Uh, and so part of what is needed is a desire to change. If we have no desire to change, if a counselee has no desire to change, nothing's going to happen. So if that isn't there, we need to help them understand the need for change. 
those teenagers who, whose parents bring them and they think, everything's great, I don't know what the problem is. I need to help them understand, no, something's broken. Something needs fixing and help them have a desire uh, to change. But I, as a counselor, I need to desire their change, right? Let's not miss this. If I don't understand and have a desire that they grow in their walk with the Lord, if they grow towards Christ's likeness, we're wandering aimlessly. We're just having a good conversation. That's not loving them. That's not helpful. I need to desire that they change and know the direction. Lastly, and importantly, most importantly, it it requires a Christ-like attitude. I think this one sums up the rest of them. Uh, So I won't reiterate too much, but a Christ-like attitude. uh, That that person sees that they are in need of help and they desire that help. And they desire help towards a particular thing. What God's word determines it should be. Uh, And on the counselor as well, counselor for you, a Christ-like attitude, an attitude of humility. Uh, Our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve. Think about that for a moment. We think about Philippians 2, where Jesus emptied himself and he came to be a servant. The God who spoke all things into existence came to serve. He washed his disciples' feet. That's who we are to be. Even as we are sitting with people who are broken and need help, we are to be humble and we are to have a a servant attitude in our own hearts, okay? So I want to make this point very clear. Counseling uh, and someone coming for counseling, it does not mean we are weak uh, necessarily. Uh, It does not mean we are lacking something. It means that we're human. All of us need help. All of us struggle with sin in our life. All of us need a Christ-like attitude. Uh, We are human, right? Uh, Paul commands us in Galatians to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He is commanding us. We are to be obedient in bearing one another's burdens. And that acknowledges that we all have burdens, right? I like to use the analogy oftentimes with my students when I'm teaching that this verse has the imagery of someone carrying a 50-pound sack of rice on their shoulders, right? Big old bag, it's heavy, right? When you carry something that's heavy, it, it pushes you down, right? My job as counselor, your job as counselors is to come stand shoulder to shoulder with them, right? You can't help them carry that bag if you're way over here, Come stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Take part of that load. That means both of you are lifted up and you walk forward together. You're taking step forward uh, together. That's, that's the imagery that I get here. Bearing one another's burdens is coming alongside a brother or sister, taking part of their burden, standing up and taking a step forward together and taking a step forward together not standing up on a mountain and saying, hey, you need to come up here. No, it's getting down in the valley with them and climbing up that mountain together, okay? Uh, Bear one another's burdens. Just some reasons for counseling. I've listed a couple, but uh, in case you are thinking, do I fit into this category? Are there people in our church who fits into this category? Uh, Here's some typical things uh, that quite often move 
a family or a person from uh, discipleship, a small group or, uh, or day-to-day living, uh, more towards counseling, where this kind of line would be. Uh, first, if that there's unresolved conflict uh, and the other methods of resolving that conflict just aren't working. Right? Sometimes we need someone who's been trained in conflict resolution, in communication skills, uh, to mediate those conversations. So if there's some sort of conflict that needs to be resolved uh, that, that hasn't been resolved through typical means. A second example of a reason for counseling is if there are sins or offenses against one another, again, that haven't been resolved elsewhere. Uh, So it may be that there are tremendous offenses that have happened uh, and communication has been hindered. Uh, Perhaps it is that those people need to to see a counselor or a pastor or a leader uh, and all sit down together and work through that offense uh, together. Third, and this is uh, the last one, uh, last, the next three rather, are ones that we typically think of as counseling. But if there are emotional struggles or difficulties, if we're honest, all of us have fit into this category at some point or another, right? All of us. Uh, there have been emotional struggles, whether that be anxiety uh, that seems to weigh us down, whether that be feelings of depression or a weightiness or a cloud that we, we can't push through. Uh, maybe it's intrusive thoughts, thoughts that get stuck in our minds and we can't push them out. These struggles, uh, emotional struggles or difficulties. Uh, perhaps it is that uh, someone needs help to work through some of these emotions Uh, Our culture, our American culture especially, very much tells us to let your heart be your guide. What your heart says, what you feel, is true and good. Uh, But Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful. And so sometimes it's hard to wrestle through, I feel this way, but I know this. How do I I make that connection uh, and let truth inform what I feel when it feels so strongly right? So emotional struggles or difficulties. Fourth, uh, this one's pretty straightforward, but trauma, if there has been uh, a traumatic event or a crisis, uh, think in these terms, uh, abuse or um, uh, post-traumatic stress. Um, Maybe someone comes back from serving in a war Uh, But trauma, Um, this has been a big focus in the Southern Baptist world lately, uh, abuse in particular, Uh, and we are seeing lots of of people coming for counseling because they've experienced trauma. Uh, Trauma requires a trained counselor, I would submit to you. Um, This has been an area of focus of mine for the last few years in particular, Um, And I've seen instances where people have lived with the effects of trauma or the effects of abuse and never dealt with those things. And it impacts every moment of every day. And they need help. They need help working through that and processing through that. Uh, Fifth, uh, life transitions. Sometimes change is really good, but change can also be really hard. I see this especially for children. Uh, So perhaps a move 
perhaps going from middle school to high school. I see that one more often than we might think. Uh, life transitions. Uh, even in situations, uh, for a while I had a lot of counseling around families who uh, the parents were divorcing and the children were really struggling with that. Uh, and so bringing them for counseling was very helpful. And, and lastly, number six, but one we don't often think about, is theological questions. Now, ideally, we would like to see this uh, taking place within normal ministry circles, right? Small groups or Sunday school or teaching, answering these questions. But a lot of times, too, these questions are spurred on or started by a tough event, right? Uh, So for instance, right now I have uh, a young lady that I'm counseling uh, who's struggling with infertility and has been for a long time. And she's wrestling with, God loves me, and desires me to be uh, live out certain things, and part of that is uh, being a family. She desires that, uh, and and particularly in this instance, um, she's had several miscarriages where she's lost um, children, and so she's struggling theologically with how can God love children and allow my children to die. That's a weighty question that you might not want to bring up in a larger context, right? So understandably, some of these theological questions that she has or other people have are best dealt with on a one-to-one counseling sort of situation. Uh, That's a good thing, right? We can encourage that. Now, in that same situation, we might be dealing with some emotions going on or some conflict between her and her husband. That's okay. None of these have to exclude the other. But the theological questions are a very real thing. Uh, that we want to uh, keep in mind. All right, lastly here, where do we go from here? What are our takeaways from here? Um, As we were encouraged earlier, uh, if you have one thing, take away one thing from today, certainly Dr. Smith gave us uh, a few, I want to give you a few others to consider. First, consider if counseling is something that you or your family would benefit from. Uh, Now, counseling is humbling. (laughs) To admit fault, admit sin, it is hard. I I understand that. Uh, But is there unresolved conflict? Is there sin? Are there offenses against one another in your family that you need resolved? That you need resolved in order to live in a way that God has called you to live as a husband, as a wife, as a mother or a father? Uh, Could you benefit from counseling? Was there a traumatic event in your own life as a child or troubling relationship as a child that you've not processed and perhaps you're seeing it repeated in your own family? Consider, consider talking to someone. Uh, Second, uh, as pastors, as leaders, as counselors, as I've appointed you all as counselors, you need to model right living for the people that you shepherd, okay? Do not be a hypocrite. Uh, Understand that people are watching you and they are seeing how you handle struggles in your own life. Model that well for them uh, as best that you can. Uh, This does not mean that everyone needs to know every detail of your life. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, But I'm saying that you should not be saying one thing and doing another, Be consistent in your own walks as you model uh, for your people. 
Third, and very tangibly, uh, you can learn more about counseling. Be better prepared to counsel. Uh, I teach right next door at the seminary. There are many, many ways that you could go about doing this. I'll give you just a few. You could go through formal education. We have several master's degrees. We have an undergraduate degree. We have doctoral degrees, any level of learning. We also have uh, what's called a GO certificate that you can take seven different one-hour, one-credit-hour courses. It's all online. It's all self-paced. And it's intentionally created to help lay leaders and pastors and elders, counselors, be better prepared to counsel. It's a great program. You could get formal education. Uh, Second, though, is you could get informal education or observation. Informal, read some books. I can give you lots of suggestions. Uh, I love reading and give you suggestions in that informal education or observation. Do you know someone? Is there a pastor in your church or in your area that you know is a great counselor? Ask them, can I just sit with you as you counsel someone? Can I just watch what you do and learn from you? I tell my students all the time, you will learn so much more about counseling through observation and through doing counseling than you will from me talking to you. So I would, I would say that you would learn from sitting in on a counseling session with someone so much more than you even have this morning. Right? Observe someone. Uh, watch what they do as they counsel. Lots of takeaways from any level of ministry here of what you can do. But I want to encourage you to take this seriously, uh, but be encouraged, right? We all counsel. God has given us his word, and he's given us his spirit. And so we can, we can rest in that, and we can use that uh, to uh, bring him glory and honor.